The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations and the following message comes from The Guardian Network, a national community of preferred financial representatives and agencies dedicated to helping Americans live with greater financial confidence through a collaborative planning approach. Does it surprise you that Americans across all income levels are seriously stressed? How confident or stressed are you? Find out where you stack up by taking the Living Confidently quiz at livingconfidently.com forward slash confidence. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I'm joined today by another Dan who is a BFI enthusiast. Dan Egan is the Director of Investing and Behavioral Finance at Betterment. Uh, Before that, he was part of the behavioral finance team at Barclays, uh, the very first of its kind to be associated with a large bank. He has a deep understanding of quant finance, cognitive psychology, and he's focused on improving decisions through design and technology. Welcome, Dan. My pleasure. Well, um, it's great to be here. Yeah. So, Dan, you're you're an interesting guy. Uh, tell us something fun or cool about you that doesn't show up on the more formal work bio. Uh, so, I think uh, I like to start off with um, leaning into failures. I think I've been rejected from about five PhD programs over the years. Um, it was always sort of uh, the path that I thought I would take of going and getting a research doctorate and being in a research focused career. And uh, other people uh, had other other views on that. So in a weird way, um, I kind of feel like those doors closing in my face have led to me being to a place that I'm pretty happy at anyway. Um, and where I actually work with a lot of PhDs, um, but without the, the drive to publish in journals and so on. So um, if anything, I've taken away from it, you know, sometimes it can sort of a failure can end up being an unexpected success in the long run. Well, it's uh, it's fascinating. I, I didn't know that about you. And it's a testament to me to how broken the college admissions <laughs> process is. And, you know, I think back to when I got into grad school, um, just, just effectively having to lie about my uh, professional aspirations in order to get accepted into a research PhD program. You know, basically having to pretend to want to be a professor when I grew up, when I had no aspiration to do that. So perhaps perhaps part of the reason you didn't get in is because you're a better person than I am. I don't, I don't think that's true. But I do think, you know, it also, um, in general, you know, we need to be aware when things happen in our lives, how much that other people have made decisions for us on. How often, you know, like they're, they're guessing sometimes too. Their decision making is going to be noisy and we shouldn't take things too personally. Uh, that's a that is a great takeaway from that because after I got into my PhD program, they would they would involve us in the selection process. And mm-hmm. it, um, it's arbitrary at best. When you get to people who are applying to PhD programs, they're all quite smart. Absolutely. And so, uh, so you're you're applying some some pretty goofy criteria in some cases. Uh, so thank you for that. So you're the you're the head of behavioral finance. Uh, probably the best known digital advisor, Betterment. Uh, tell us a bit about what your day to day looks like. Sure. Uh, so 
I'll, I'll give some a little bit of broader context on it. I, I've been here for five years. I was about employee number 20 at Betterment. And I joined from Barclays um, after about six years at Barclays, which was a fantastic six years, because I wanted to see um, whether or not going directly to clients and changing the interfaces and the technology that they use would be more effective um, than kind of trying to go via an advisor. Uh, so Barclays, a big part of what we did was built out frameworks and technologies that advisors would use with clients. And after we did that, we would try and you know, discern whether or not what we were doing was helping people, um, was changing the way that portfolios were crafted or how satisfied clients were with Barclays as a bank. And it was just very noisy, you know, and part of it was that there's all of the noise around the individual client and things that are changing in their life and their markets. And then the same thing is true of an advisor. So I sort of talk about this as being a two-body problem from the behavioral researcher's point of view. It's not simply a matter of a client or an advisor, but both of them working together. Um, the other component of it that I got into was that you're somewhat hobbled as an advisor by what technology you buy or use and how well it integrates with other things. And technology that might be built to be very good for managing a portfolio isn't very well built for communicating that uh, financial plan to a client. So a big part of it was saying, like, what if, what if they let me into the room where the technology is designed, where the interfaces are crafted, where we think about how the, the service is going to actually touch the eyeballs of the client? Um, I think that might be really interesting. So that's that's a big part of what I do is I sit across um, sort of most of the client touching functions at Betterment, be that uh, the investing team who are thinking about what investment strategies um, we should recommend and match to clients, or the design team who are trying to portray um, clients' investments and financial plans and historical performance together in one place. Um, or the communications team where we're trying to do uh, write educational content um, or talk to clients about why what's happening is happening. So I kind of think of it at the end of the day is, are, are we helping our clients? Are we being successful in helping them grow their wealth in the way that's most efficient for them? Um, if there's a, a component of that in what we're doing, then I'm probably touching it. So one of the cool things and one of the reasons why I think you're such a fascinating follow uh, personally and on social media is that your decision to go in the room where the technology is, is put together has put you in a really fascinating point from a behavioral research perspective. You're allowed to do and you have access to insights that I think many others of us would, would kill for. And so you did some interesting research a while back uh, on comparing two methodologies for dealing with volatile markets. As I remember it, uh, Betterment had a blanket policy of, of reaching out to clients and saying effectively, uh, hey, don't panic uh, when, when markets were getting choppy. But your, your position there from the, the technological catbird seat lets you, lets you have some different insights. What, can you tell us a bit about that study and what you learned there? Yeah, absolutely. I would say this, even taking a step back, this is one of those great cases of when you have received conventional wisdom, every once in a while check and see if it's true. Um, you know, trust but verify it because the received conventional wisdom was that when markets are getting choppy and the news starts talking about what's going on in markets, 
an advisor should reach out to their clients and should take the initiative to do that because if they wait for the client to ask them, the client has already kind of made a decision. It's too late to walk back the emotional momentum that they're bringing with it. Um, so I heard that. I've kind of adhered to it for years. We've done it at Betterment. And then we said, well, um, we're actually noticing that when we send these kinds of emails, login rates go up, allocation rate change, uh, allocation change rates go up. So we might be actually influencing clients unexpectedly to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. And I kind of think about this like um, diagnosis. So if we went around just giving chemotherapy to everybody, that would be horrible. Chemotherapy is a really nasty experience to go through. But what we need to do is give it to just the people who have the type of cancer that's going to be responsive to so um, targeted treatment is necessary to, to prevent unintended consequences. We only want to treat the people who are worried about what's going on in markets. And we're going to do that behaviorally. So um, what we first did is we did a test with emails um, where we split Betterman's client base up into, I think, four different arms, one of which was a control, and then three different versions of an email. Um, this was during the Greek debt crisis, uh, way, way back in ye old day of like 2013. <laughs> and what we found was that um, there was a lot more activity that was triggered by our email. Clients were more likely to deposit. Clients were also more likely to withdraw. Um, and overall, um, you know, we were provoking actions, both good and bad, by having this outbound um, communication. Now, it was still helpful to, to some percentage of people. There were some percentage of people who said, okay, my plan's off track, I need to deposit to get back on track, or I am comforted by this. So how can we target the people who are anxious and concerned and leave everybody else alone? Well, what we did is when there is a market drawdown, once we start seeing certain kinds of um, canary in the coal mine activity, we put out what we call a high priority notification that only touches you once you log in either to our website or the smartphone app. And it's a little modal that gives a very brief summary of what we think is going on in markets, invites you to read a, an article that we've written about it, um, and hopefully kind of um, is an intervention to prevent you from, from continuing on with that momentum. And what we've generally found is that there's all upside to that and no downside. So we're not disturbing the people who aren't anxious. The people who are anxious log in. Mm -hmm. And we're reducing the withdrawal rates, the allocation change rates, et cetera, um, for those individuals. So um, uh, the only other takeaways is that, generally speaking, messages that are positive, empowering, and personalized are a lot more effective than things that talk about the markets. So we want to talk about um, the client's situation with them, not actually about the markets. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. This is why I think you and I will always have a job and why the study of human behavior is so fascinating. You take you take something that on its face seems very, uh, very good. Like, you know, when markets get choppy, we're going to reach out with a comfor comforting message. Uh, but perhaps in some cases, you were introducing worry where there was none previously. And so you take a, a you know, less, less of a sledgehammer, more of a scalpel. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's a powerful approach, and you're uniquely positioned to do that. Um, Betterman also has been in the news quite a bit recently because of some research that you did uh, regarding this this ten year anniversary of the, of the financial crisis. Uh, what what did you learn in that research about how where investors' heads are at? Yeah, I think one of these are, um, and it's something that's always worth coming back to is. 
thinking about individuals um, and their experiences and, you know, where they've ended up in a, in a certain belief state or a certain emotional state for reasons that are very particular to them. Um, so the piece of research that we were looking at um, looked at both people who were investing um, before and during the 2008 crisis and, and after as well, versus people who weren't. And one of the things that it really drove home for me was, uh, you know, one of the surprising things is that people who were investing going into 2008 were still much more likely to be investing now compared to those who weren't. Um, and it wasn't so much necessarily an issue of the financial crisis and what stock markets did, but more of the downstream economic impacts. Um, if you lost your job, if you were kicked out of your house, those are the kinds of consequences that have much stronger long-term impacts upon you thinking about the markets a certain way and how much risk you're comfortable taking. Um, so we actually see, you know, I think the dominant factor is not being whether or not um, I don't know, you think markets have been fixed or regulations are better, but do you actually have a sort of firsthand experience of being able to recover after a financial crisis versus really having been knocked out hard for a decade from the ability to earn and the ability to save perspective? Now, if I recall correctly, a number of people, a high percentage of people in the study thought that the market was down over the last years. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, um, I think it was something like only 8% of people correctly answered that the market was up more than 200%. Uh, wow. Yeah. What do we do? You know, I've done research for my for my forthcoming book that talks about how grossly people misremember their own performance. Basically, people misreport their performance very dramatically. You know, they think they've outperformed the benchmark when they haven't. They think they've been positive when they've been negative. And then we see it, you know, the uh, in some respects, the flip side here, we've had just enormously positive market moves for a decade. And people think the market's either not up much or even down. What do we do to get the message across to people? And what, what are the sources of this misinformation? Well, so on the on the latter question, I think the answer is that um, through a convoluted chain of events, we are responsible. Um, we click on stories that are a little bit sensationalist and interesting and often uh, fear sells. And so journalists are going to write about market drawdowns and crashes, uh, especially when they're salient or when there's clear victims, a lot more than they're going to talk about a nice, slow, steady rise of markets. Um, and I think that's where the real asymmetry, especially for people who aren't investing themselves, come from, is that if they hear about markets doing anything in the news, it's usually that markets are down and down a lot. Um, we, they don't naturally hear about markets creeping you know, higher 2% over the course of a series of months. Mm. So one of it is just the, the information that we're kind of bombarded with. The other, uh, to get back to like how do we maybe fix this, um, I usually think of it as having backdoor introductions to the fact that markets go up over time. And starting with the ability to auto-enroll people in 401ks and put them into generally pretty sensible investments like target date funds, a lot more people have gotten exposure to the fact that they can save, um, put it into sort of a risk-managed vehicle of some kind, and that that will go up over time. And they can keep looking at these statements this is their money. It's not sort of somebody else's money. Um, there's this notion that the employer is kind of looking it after for them, after uh, it for them, 
and they will see the market go up over time. Um, and that kind of um, guided, assisted, and low effort way of gaining firsthand experience in the markets, where it doesn't, uh, perversely, I think maybe the, the fact that they can blame somebody else if they feel like it goes wrong helps a lot too. That gives people the firsthand experience that on average over decades um, is gonna help them get comfortable with the idea of investing. Um, you can also think about this if you have kids or somebody else of, you know, um, giving them an account where you're managing it. You're saying this is your money, but I'm going to give you the statements every month that you're going to take a look at it. We need to give people in a sort of controlled setting that ability to gain firsthand experience of what investing is like. Um, and I kind of think about this as like, um, you know, when you want to learn how to ski, you don't start off at the top of the mountain on a, a double black diamond. You start off on the bunny slopes and you get to learn how things work in a, a controlled setting, usually by somebody who's giving you um, a, a learning schema to follow. Yeah. That's, that's great advice. Getting people's hands dirty in a real way that let, lets them keep an eye on it in a personalized way because those informational asymmetries are always going to be there. Um, dramatic downturns are always, well, and even not that dramatic downturns. God knows every 2% dip gets reported like it's the end of the world. Yeah. Um, they're, they're always going to be a lot more salient and a lot more top of mind than that slow, uh, gradual increase. So you, you recently wrote a blog post that's probably my favorite uh, I've read in the last six months, and, and it was called oh, wow. Yeah, there you go. It was called Yeah, it's called Strategic Faith. And I thought it was such an interesting, uh, an interesting take on an investing truth. Uh, can you tell us a bit about this article and, and your, your suppositions that you set for strategic faith? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I have this perverse thing that I kind of like taking um, both sides of every argument to see if I, if I can agree with both sides. And I think this came out of an evidence-based investing conference where uh, a lot of people were doubling down on like, okay, well, we need to invest as the evidence tells us to, um, and, you know, just look at the facts. And there's this really tough issue, which is that, like, I believe in evidence, I believe in empirical work as well. I don't believe we should just kind of um, believe anything regardless of whether or not there's evidence supporting it. But evidence is required, but not sufficient. Um, it's very easy for empirical facts to be noisy or only true in the short term. Um, and sometimes it can be really hard to stick with. Uh, so the point of the piece uh, was to explore the idea that a necessary ingredient to being a good investor is a faith in the approach that you take. Uh, if you're an investor and all that you are looking at is the recent performance of an investment strategy or how well the fund has done, you're kind of going to flip-flop from fad to fad. Um, and you're going to be buying higher and selling lower because of the fact that you're looking at things and moving towards things that have done relatively well lately. Um, so flipping it, we, you know, I think most investors, it's a good strategy for them to find a, a faith, you know, that you can believe in it. It might be passive index tracking, or it might be trend following. It might be socially responsible, but you need to find some investment strategy that you're comfortable sticking with, even if it's losing to the S&P 500, even if you're down 15 or 20 or 25% that you say, yeah, you know, the recent evidence is that this isn't doing so good, but I believe in it for the long run. And I think each of us as investors is actually going to have better performance 
believing in something greater than just six or 12 months of trailing returns. Um, they need something to stick with. It's, it's interesting when I've pre- presented investment strategies to people with, you know, with say a, a 30 year back test and I'll present a strategy to them and they'll say, well, well, does it have periods of underperformance? And you go, well, you know, of, of course it does. Mm-hmm. If, it if it didn't have periods of underperformance, it would have either been data mined or I, I'd be lying to you. And people get disappointed about this. Mm-hmm. I, I think that a faith, you know, a belief in something, whether it is, again, value, momentum, low fee, buy and hold, whatever it is, I think we need that faith because even the best strategies are going to underperform the broad market 30% of the time. Uh, and that's a lot. I mean, that can be years and years at a time which feels like an eternity effectively. Uh, so my, uh, a follow-up question to this is, you know, extending this analogy, how can the faithless get religion and, and how do you avoid getting duped or, or believing in, in the wrong thing? Definitely. So I think you, you've kind of um, touched on some components of it already. Uh, one of which is I think we need to make the, the struggle part of the virtue. Um, and if you think about sort of, Nobody believes that you can get in extremely good shape without depriving yourself of chocolate cake and without the soreness of going to the gym and exercising. But that soreness, that pain is what gives rise to the long-term strength and robustness of your body. Um, So one of it is to actually make kind of uh, the underperformance or the the deviation from the benchmark be part of the required ingredient and to rejoice in it. You know, um, right now, Betterment's portfolios are doing um, underperforming the S&P 500 because we have an allocation to emerging markets. A lot of people are saying, well, you know, I don't I don't want to underperform. And I sit there and say, this is great. You know, I've actually built a diversified portfolio where some parts of it are not doing well and other parts are. And in future years, I expect those things to reverse and I'll be happy that I'm exposed to to emerging markets. So one part of it is to make pain a virtue. Uh, A lot of people don't like hearing that, but I'm not going to tell you that you can get abs um, doing six minutes of exercise every day. The other element of it, I think that, you know, looking at evidence um, is a big part of it. And look, you know, look for evidence that disconfirms your hypothesis. Spend a lot of time reading things that criticize it. And over time, you'll generally see that, like, you don't believe what people are saying. That, you know, there's a a sort of core of um, fear or mistrust in them um, that undermine the arguments that they're trying to make. And the last one is... um, the people who are, uh, you know, whatever faith you're looking for, it should be something that works in the long run and not in the short run. If something is proposed that it works in both the long run and the short run, that's that's snake oil, that's, you know, salesmanship. It's unlikely to be true. You need to look for somebody, as you said, who's, you know, uh, you need to look for a faith that says this has to hurt for a little while in order for it to work in the long run. Yeah. I, I personally always look for three things. I look for data. Of course, we've talked about being an evidence-based investor. I always look for a, a cohesive theory that backs up, you know, any of the, any of the types of investing we've talked about, you know, low fee investing works theoretically because, you know, you're not giving that, that money away, you know, value investing works uh, because you're paying a, a low price for a good company. So there's all kinds of data. There's so much noise in the market that, you know, you see things like 
a 95% correlation between Bangladeshi butter production and S&P 500 moves, the Super Bowl metrics and things like this. I think you need need evidence. You also need some theoretical rigor. And I think ideally you want a behavioral component to it too, because I think that's what causes uh, these things to endure. So uh, great, great advice, great advice there. Uh, you you also responded to a challenge, I believe, from Corey Hofstein uh, about to, to try and answer this question: uh, Do we change the investor or do we change the investments? So, at, at a high level, which do you think is more powerful? Are we better served to try and change human behavior or, or change the investments themselves? So, I think it really depends where where we are. Um, in your kind of journey as uh, an investor or even as sort of a financial manager. Um, I think early on, it's easier to change the investments. Um, And that's because there is so much to learn when you first starting out investing and trying to manage your money that it can be really overwhelming. And keeping it super simple and something that you are comfortable with and something that you feel like you can learn from and get good feedbacks from is critical. Um, So starting out with um, a portfolio that you are, or or a set of investment strategies that you're comfortable with and you understand is is really important. And then you're going to start investing in yourself. You're going to start trying to move up um, the learning curve, figure out what works, figure out what doesn't. And along the way, you're going to start making the portfolio more complicated such that it fits in your circumstances. So maybe you're going to start looking at tax-exempt municipal bonds because you have a high enough tax rate. Perhaps you're going to start looking at um, more complicated tax strategies like asset location. Uh, That's because you kind of learned about the 101 level of um, diversification or holding a a portfolio that's appropriate for how long you're investing for, um, and you can start making it more complex. So I don't think it's, it's not generally either or, it's more a matter of um, allow, you know, change yourself to be a little bit more savvy, a little bit more knowledgeable about investments. That'll let you change the portfolio in a way which both um, fits you better, but also is a feedback loop that tells you what you need to learn more about, how you can do better. Um, And the last part of it that I think is really important is to understand that it isn't about you versus some external benchmark or versus other people. Um, Each of us have to build a portfolio that's like a home. It has to fit us. It has to be the place where we are comfortable spending a lot of our hours. And I wouldn't want to live in any of my friends' houses because they're right for them and not right for me. That sort of long-term tailoring of what you're comfortable with, knowing yourself, knowing what you want to have um, that's going to make it a a sort of fulfilling investment process for you is something that's very personal. You should try to ignore or move away from public benchmarks or comparing to other people as much as possible. Mm. Sound advice. So Betterment began as a standalone service, but has uh, more recently partnered with advisors. There's a there's a ton of conversation, I think, in financial services and even in the world more broadly about algorithmic approaches versus human approaches. And then this, we'll call it the, the centaur or blended approach. What, what do you see as the advantages to a blended approach that might not be present in, in either of the extremes of systematic or, or purely human uh, approaches? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, specialization of labor. Um, you know, it's one extreme. I think it's a little bit silly to think about financial advisors not using calculators um, in order to do the math. Like we don't we don't think that calculators are taking jobs away. So a lot of what uh, we use technology to do is to kind of be a, a good implementation of our own ideas. Whenever I write algorithms, I think of it as kind of like I could do this a um, hundred times kind of uh, ad hoc with a client, or I could sit down and think about like, how am I actually making this decision? And I want to make it in a consistent version. that's clear about, you know, like, what am I taking into consideration? How do I make certain trade-offs? Um, and then how do I actually implement it? So within the firm, we're often talking to financial planners, human advisors, in terms of what are those things where if we bit them off, you know, we could turn them into a process which was systematic, which would free up a lot of advisor time to spend more time speaking with clients about the things that we can't do that to, right? Um, for some people, advisors are necessary. They need somebody to speak to. They need personalized communication. They need an advisor pushing back on them when they're either trying to deceive the advisor or deceive themselves. Um, they need help discovering what their priorities are in their life and, and how they're comfortable building up a financial plan to admit that, um, either in terms of illiquidity or what account types they use or how much a spouse knows about everything that's going on there. So um, I think that the, you know, like there's a lot of room there um, where in the long run, we are going to push advisors to deliver a higher value, more comprehensive service because a lot of the stuff that um, they spend their time doing it being you know, processing trades or um, doing, kind of, I don't know, strange kinds of due diligence or optimization, computers can do that very well. On the other hand, computers cannot talk to a widow about how to figure out um, the plan of putting her kids through college, not with a husband. And I think that that specialization of labor is something mm. we generally need to, to double down. On the flip side of it, there's a nuance here, which is that, um, and again, it comes back to the, the benefit of dog fooding or being the one who's building the thing. Betterment has advisors. Um, we work with advisors. We allow third-party independent RAs and CFPs to use it. Um, but critically, we're not sort of just a software provider to them. When they feel the pain of something not working, when they're like, my clients keep saying that they don't understand X or Y or Z, we're hearing the exact same thing, too, as a provider. And so that puts the same kind of pressure and discomfort on us to fix those kinds of problems. We're, we're the clients of this service as well. Um, and we have the ability to fix those problems in the software and in the technology, which means that um, it's kind of like a virtuous loop between us and the advisors we serve. I, I feel like the industry's kind of coming to its senses with respect to digital advisors. I feel like in the early days, there was such uh, hysteria and such uh, hyper-partisanship and, and decamping into for and against in very black and white ways. And I, <clears throat> I think that we're coming to a more nuanced view of, of the various parties that are involved. And I think your, your calculator analogy is apt. And I think more and more people are, are seeing it that way. And it makes me very happy. And you know, I, I think too that robo-advisors and other FinTech have really pushed what was in some respects a stagnant industry uh, in, in bolder new directions. And so I think, 
you know, I think that the, the financial services industry writ large owes a large debt of gratitude to the innovators and the fintechs who are, who are pushing what can sometimes be a stodgy industry in, in a new and better direction. I agree. So, Dan, maybe this is, maybe this is one of those uh, personal questions that's pure projection and says more about, about me than anything else. But, but it feels like much of the work being done in behavioral finance right now uh, is either warming over or, or just applying the work of early lights uh, such as Kahneman and Tversky. Uh, so my question is, what do you think the future of behavioral finance looks like? And will we ever see another Danny Kahneman or, or Amos Tversky? It's a great question. Um, I actually have this very lucid memory of being a sophomore in undergraduate college mm. and having an idea. I was taking sort of microeconomics or something at the time. Having an idea and going to the library and sort of seeing whether or not anybody had ever done this kind of a study to chess something before. And you know, immediately up pops some article from like 1975 from Daniel Kahneman. Um, and bear in mind, I was born in 1981. And so like over the next, I don't know, months or two, I both fell in love with the study, but also realized, as you said, that, you know, this, this pioneer has come in and really kind of like covered a heck of a lot of the important ground very early on and very solid. Um, and I think that... I, I doubt we're going to see another like him. There are people who are doing very good sort of like extending and refining of things. I think there's still a lot of confusion around when do we use um, peer comparisons and peer effects effectively and, and when do we not? Um, how do we effectively think about um, loss aversion and when we should use it and when we shouldn't? So I, I do think that there's still a lot of kind of refining work out there, but the core insight about um, about the fact that people don't behave perfectly rationally and that there are consistent issues, that's that's water under the bridge. That's been decided. Now it's a little bit more, uh, instead of a deconstructive theory, everybody's looking out for a constructive unified theory that says, here's a, a good simplifying model that seems to cover a very, very wide array of circumstances that explains how we think the way that we do. Um, and I don't know, they've been looking for that for years in physics and they've got string theory and other things. Maybe we'll find it, maybe we don't. Um, for me, at least, the questions are far more practical about um, how do I actually take this and make people's lives better by using it. That's, that's why I get out of bed in the morning as well. For, because for all the pioneering work that's been done, it seems as though there's still a great deal of, uh, of confusion and it still feels like we're early days in terms of the practical application of these concepts like how practically do we take what you read about in thinking fast and slow and make it work for for you and your clients so that that's what excites me and that's where i think the future is and you know in in many respects the the growth and the trajectory of behavioral finance largely mirrors the the, the growth and the trajectory of clinical psychology which you know which began with the study of, of neurosis and yeah, you know, neurosis and human failings and only more recently has come to the more applied place of, you know, not studying what makes people broken or sad, but what makes them happy and what makes them great. These are 
you know, relatively recent uh, discoveries in psychology. So I'm hopeful that people, uh, you know, people like you can can help us take this in a new direction. So I, I mirror your enthusiasm for that applied piece. One of the, the most um, kind of provocative and lovely ideas I've heard about this recently uh, was put forward by Lee Caldwell. Um, and one, one of the most interesting ways of thinking about how our brains work in these social settings is that we kind of have these these general purpose gadgets that we end up using in ways which you wouldn't have originally conceived of. Um, so one of them is that we're social creatures. So we have to have a good kind of understanding or at least a, a good model of how other people are thinking and feeling. And that is a general purpose tool that can extend to things like why we feel empathy and why we give to charity um, and what motivates us to do good things for other people. But also making decisions about future dance um, and saying, um, why do we save for retirement? What, what do I care about this guy who's 30 years in the future? Well, I'm able to imagine and put myself in the context of being somebody who's um, older and really scared about his health um, and wants to make sure that he's stable. And so there are still, I think there are still really lovely ideas out there that do allow us to kind of understand ourselves better in a, in a good parsimonious way that we can use. Um, but they definitely feel like they're incremental improvements rather than sort of um, earth shattering deconstructive ones. Yeah. So Dan, as, as we begin to wrap up, I always like to give listeners some practical action steps, some things that they can move forward with if they're interested in, in further understanding these concepts. Um, what would you say is the most underread book in behavioral finance? What's the, what's the book that's a, a, a value play? Oof. Um, so this isn't a beginner one necessarily. Um, but I do think once you're kind of like at an intermediate level, it's a critical one. Um, and it's a book called An Engine, Not a Camera. And it's actually a sociology book about how what is true in finance changes over time. Uh, what it actually looks at as an example, how um, we didn't used to know really, we didn't have a mathematical formula for how to price options and other derivatives. And once Black Scholes came up with a mathematical model that said, this is the way you should do this, everybody started using it and everybody believed it was right. And then all of a sudden, um, options pricing got a lot more deterministic and people were able to build more structured products because they could justify putting together complicated um, options things in a way that they could price. But the bigger understanding of it is that finance and financial markets are a constantly changing set of beliefs about how society works and um, what is true and what is not true. And that unlike, say, physics, we're not measuring gravitational constants. We are measuring differences in regulation in different market environments over time. And a good understanding of how many different people come together to have um, you know, either true beliefs or false beliefs is really helpful for understanding bubbles and why they pop. So I'm reading a book right now uh, that, that, that suggests that finance and you know quants on wall street might be quote the, the primordial ooze from which artificial intelligence emerges and, and the authors the author's thought was that because wall street's uh, expending so much time and effort and money 
on uh, codifying human truths through through quant algorithms mm. that we might discover some bold truths about humanity. But when I read this argument, I thought, well, you know, that's interesting. But then hearkening back to the concept that you've talked about there, I, I just thought of how changing how changing truths are in finance in a way that they're not in physics, or I would say even psychology, uh, because of the way that everything impacts everything else. So I am certainly putting this book on my list. I've not read it myself and will certainly be taking a look. Um, and then the final question, Dan, is what are three steps that investors can take if they want to start to improve their investment behavior, if they know that they need to do better, what are three small steps they can take to, to begin to move in that direction? Yep. Uh, so without a doubt, the first one I'm going to say is to consider the opportunity costs of looking at your investments. Um, one of the things that I keep coming back to is that um, the more that people monitor in that their investments um, generally speaking, the worst they do at managing investments. Um, and also that it's important to keep in mind that investments in money are just there to help you buy and procure the other things in life that matter more. Um, so whenever I sort of sit down to kind of do, in some, do something with my financial planner, with my investments, I have to say like, is this actually going to be the best use of my time? Or am I better off um, spending an hour learning a new skill or writing up a proposal um, that could make a bigger impact? It's very easy to start looking at balances and money and wanting them to grow and forgetting that for a lot of us, um, the way to make more money faster is actually to earn it, to earn it either through having more and varied skills or to make better use of our existing um, professional skills. So I would say step one, Think about whether or not there's a better use of your time than trying to improve your investments. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think in a way, uh, those of us who work in financial services, I think are at a disadvantage because we have to be almost of necessity immersed in these markets all the time. I feel like in many respects, I would be a better behavioral investor if I didn't study behavioral investing all day. There's a real... Right. There's yeah. a, there's a real advantage to being uh, disengaged. So I think, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. And I think that human capital, uh, you know, I think that human capital and continuous learning is probably the, the most overlooked way to try and make money. Everyone wants to crank up their, uh, their performance by a percentage point or two, but you could do a lot better than that by learning a new skill. Definitely. Uh, my second one is to write out a plan for the second step of your decision. So oftentimes people will decide that they want to buy a stock um, or a new fund. And it's always good to kind of write out at that point in time when you're making that decision, what would lead you to undo it? What's going to cause you to sell? What's going to cause you to take the money out? Um, and I think that's really good in revealing for how sort of driven by either short-term news or a short-term compulsion that desire is. Because if you can't figure out why you would sell something, it's also an interesting question why you should buy it. Um, so writing down um, kind of like the two steps of the decision, either like, you know, I'm selling out of the markets right now, I will get back in when and be able to actually write that out. And on the flip side, I am buying into markets now. I will sell when 
you should be writing those out and thinking about those when you're in sort of a cool, collected, rational state of mind. Mm. We shouldn't be making those decisions on the fly when circumstances um, have pushed us to do it. Yes, absolutely. And is there a third? Um, I think look, the third one um, is to just always have somebody who you run stuff by first. I've always been blown away by how speaking with somebody you know, sometimes even not kind of getting into the weeds allows me to really broaden my own perspective and take a step back and realize that I've, I've, I've gone into the rabbit hole on something and it's not worth going down that rabbit hole. On it. Um, so it, it's not necessarily sort of like having somebody always be looking at the portfolio with you, but just say um, the ability to, to say, hey, I'm thinking about changing this and have somebody there to listen to bounce the idea off. It's very valuable. Mm. It's it's incredible to me how how speaking something into existence and externalizing it, getting it out of your head, putting it out in the world almost makes it more real and more malleable and easier to work with. I'm I'm always amazed how much clarity I receive when I just take an idea out of my head and express it to my wife or, or someone else, right? How how much realer it gets and how much more workable it gets. So Dan E. Absolutely fantastic. If people want to follow you and learn more about your work, where can we find you uh, on the series of tubes that is the World Wide Web? Yep. Um, so I'm Daniel underscore Egan on Twitter, and the, the last name is E-G-A-N. Um, and my website, where I occasionally manage to steal enough time away from my family to write things, is dpegan.com. All right. Dan Egan, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian trademark and the Guardian G trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018 Guardian.